but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. Uh, we're coming to you from 401 in southwestern Ontario. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And this is episode 93. Yep, this also. is our fifth episode Cincinnati related. We started with a road trip episode and we're ending with a road trip episode as well. Uh, you know, we like full circles. Like symmetry. What's new? What are we doing? Well, first off, I want to implore everybody who has enjoyed our coverage who listens to the body serve on a regular basis enjoyed our cincy coverage we got a question in our mailbag as to what our plans are for the podcast what do we where do we hope to be in a couple of years or whatever if we plan to monetize and ask people for money none of those things we're doing at this point so all this content is free <laughs> right and so the only thing that we ask of you is, of course, share our stuff on social media. But while we always leave this to the end to beg and plead for an iTunes review, we're going to we're gonna ask that up front as we pass this truck on the road. Head over to iTunes. Let everybody know what you think of the show. And on that note, we want to thank Stephen Brown, who left us just the most wonderful review on iTunes. Absolutely. Just very generous, emotionally, uh, intellectually. <laughs> we just really appreciate that kind of feedback. And I did want to shout out Kimbo, who was the person who actually asked us that question about what the future holds for us. And uh, she also asked a question that was very, very similar to one we asked on the last episode and didn't really get a shout out. So here it is. Thank you, Kimbo, for the both questions. I thought we we're going to do that later on. Just leave it with the rest of the questions. Okay, sure. Okay. Well, you know, it was that you referenced it. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you give the listeners a rundown of what's coming this episode? Okay, so what's coming? We're going to talk about the tennis. So we'll focus on the two finals. We are going to give you our interview with Ashley Barty. After that, we're going to go through our listener questions, and you were very nice to give us some more for the second episode. Y'all did such a good job with those questions because we made an agenda of stuff we wanted to talk about, and so much of the questions dovetail with what we were going to talk yeah. about anyway, so yeah. you made it much more easy for us to get this show on the road. So we're also going to work in some, some audio from press that relates to a few of your questions, and finally, we'll just kind of wrap up our experience in Cincinnati some some high level stuff that we've been thinking about some broader issues uh, so yeah here we go the first thing you wanted to talk about was our very first experience at White Castle yes which shall be our last experience <laughs> at White Castle we've okay. been chasing White Castle for years yes so I grew up in western New York in Rochester and for some reason we don't have White Castle up there I like to think that we're that means we're very discerning consumers. Is that what that means? <laughs> Obviously, I grew up in Jamaica. I live in Canada now. We don't have White Castle. My only exposure to White Castle was Harold and Kumar, obviously. Right. And so when we went to a... We've been to so many weddings in Ohio. 
and we've now been to Tennyson, Ohio three straight summers. We've spent way too much time in Ohio, is the bottom line. <laughs> like, Ohio is one of the most varied states that you will drive through. So when you're driving really through, is. in our case, south, southbound through Ohio, you see a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Like, the west... I spend a lot of time in the eastern part of the state, like in the Cleveland area. And the western part of Ohio is so, so different. It's more Midwestern. Obviously, Cleveland is a Rust Belt city. It feels very Northeastern. But Western and Southern Ohio is like a whole new world. So we've been chasing White Castle for a while. We want to see what it was like. Every time we've asked somebody about it, they've told us told us unequivocally that it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> that but it's we, terrible. We wanted to see for ourselves, right? And so one time we were at a wedding in Ohio. This would have been like maybe, God, nine years ago or eight years ago. It's yeah, been a while. Yeah, yeah. And we even plugged it into the GPS and it took us to this abandoned parking lot. We're like, where did White Castle at? I thought it was like a, a plot to rob and kill us <laughs> by the GPS people. So we actually rolled up at a White Castle before that no longer existed. And so this time they were everywhere. So we decided to check it out on the way back and... My God, unless you are high and in need of stuffing your face with a million mini sliders for $10, there is no need. Uh, ugh. Okay, so the good. The good first. The It was actually a lot nicer than I expected. The store was very clean, very white. There were flowers on the tables. And they had one of those pop machines with like a gazillion different choices with, with the touch screen. For fast food, so it was, that. For fast food, it was pretty palatial. Put yes. it that way. Yes, unfortunately the food did not live up to the ambiance. No, they couldn't even get the french fries right. I'm not one to leave french fries and not eat them, but I was like, I'm not about this life right now. I actually, I didn't mind the french fries. They, they were like those ridged ones. We don't have the same taste in french fries. No, no, no. At all. But the sliders, man, that was nasty. They, for some reason they came with these little nasty onions on them too. So. I don't know. It was an experience. I'm glad I had it. That's a chapter of my life that is closed. Agreed. Moving on. Let's talk about the tennis first. And by the tennis, what would we not have talked about since the last episode? Pretty much the semifinals, the quarters to the finals, right? I don't... Well, we haven't talked about the semis or the finals. Did we talk about the quarters? I can't remember. It's so long ago. Let's skip right to the semis. The women's... The women's stuff. I think you have to kind of tell the story of Halep and Clinton that quarterfinal to really tell the full narrative of Simona Halep this week in Cincinnati. Okay. Because she played well enough and survived some really nervous moments against Conta in that second set where she lost five match points, eventually won it handily in the tiebreak. Because if she had not gotten through that match, after holding match points, that could have been really gnarly stuff for her. Yes. And then she followed up, followed that up in the semifinal by playing what she described as the best match on hard courts all summer for her, all right, year. Right. And she looked awesome against Sloane Stevens. She really did. She wasn't pushing. She looked like she was trying to make things happen from the backcourt. She was stepping in. And it helped that Sloane had nothing. To give. Yeah, Sloan had played two matches in the same day, the, the day before, and so this was three matches in 24 hours. And just she's, too much. Yeah, she's not in 2016 shape. She's just, 
She doesn't have the match play yet. She's a, This was only her fourth tournament back. Right. So, it was unfortunate that Sloane wasn't able to give her best because she was so entertaining for the rest of the week. She played some long matches, and it really... I mean, it really showed. She even uh, told her coach, Kamal Murray, I guess with the TV cameras listening, that she had no legs today. And it was clear. But Simona looked great. I don't want to take away from Simona because she played a really good match. I saw some people talking about how... Simona didn't play that great in that semifinal. I don't know how that came across on TV, but watching her live from the press box, I saw a lot of aggression. I saw a different kind of Simona. So maybe yeah, I'm I... just full of it and don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> by the same token, that was not the Simona that we saw in the final. No. And a lot of that was dictated by how well Garbinia played. And obviously playing a Garbinia at full strength, one that's very confident, coming off the Wimbledon win making the semis in Stanford, quarters in Toronto, and then making a final in Cincinnati, having beaten Svetlana in three sets, Madison Keys in three sets, Pliskova in the semifinal. She had so much good work under her belt heading into that final. Yeah. And I asked her if she felt that the week's work in Cincinnati felt like all of that was a culmination in her playing her best ball in that final. And she said, yes, absolutely. It was her best match of the week. Yes, it definitely was. I had this feeling. I know you called Oh, me... you're coming with this bullshit again. <laughs> no, you called me the Muguruza Oracle. Yes. And I'm going to stop predicting her because when Serena is back and when the U.S. Open rolls around this year and I want Venus to win it, I'm not going to predict anything for Garbinia. But the damage is already done. You've already unleashed I know. the Muguruza beast I know. on the world. I have. I'm so sorry. And what's worse is that now you like her. So I do. <laughs> that, that's the thing. That sucks. Like, why did she have to be so charming and press and so human? <laughs> we'll get to that later, but talk about flipping expectations. But the final was a dud. It was a complete shocker. Anybody can see that mumbling in the press room before the match. I, I was in a bunch of conversations where people were like, well, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? And looking at it, I was like, damn, I don't know. They're both playing so well based on their last matches. I thought we were going to get three sets. I I thought Simona was going to be able to mix it up. And she said afterward that you know Darren gave her a game plan. And or she wasn't she, able to execute. Or she said all of Darren's advices. Yeah. <laughs> but, man, like, 616 love, and believe me, it looked like 616 love, and maybe even worse in person. But for one game, I think the fourth game of the second set, where yes. they had multiple deuces, yeah. Simona had multiple chances to break, and Garbina just stood firm at the baseline and snuffed them all out. Yeah. I thought, okay, maybe maybe we're going to see something here. We'll at least see a competitive second set. But it just did not happen after Simona wasn't able to win that game. And the truly disappointing part about it was this was the third time since the French Open, and including the French Open, that Simona had the number one ranking on her racket. Yeah. Having to win one match right in front of her to be the top player in the world. And she, she joked about it in press in the all-access hour, saying that she still has nightmares about that French Open match. Well, wouldn't you? Winning her first Grand Slam and getting number one in the same day. Yeah. 
and uh, it just didn't happen. Before the final, she said, well, it's either third times lucky, three times lucky, or it's just another experience. And then in the final, now she was, after the final, she was asked about it, and she said, well, yesterday I said it was either three times lucky or another experience. I guess it's just another experience. Yeah. But you were in Simona's press. I read the transcript. She is confounding to me. I just do not understand the woman. Because I think, I don't mean this in a rude way, she's the prime candidate for a sports psychologist. And I don't think that that should be taboo. Because I think that there's something holding her back. I don't want to hear my favorite player apologize in two successive weeks about not putting in a good performance in the final. I want her to be upset. I want her to want it more than ever. And I don't, I just don't hear that. And maybe that's her way of, of processing. I don't know. I haven't heard everything that Simone has said since her bad loss in Toronto. Mm. I haven't been on all her social media. So I don't know just how many times she's apologized, but I know <laughs> of three. Right. She apologized. And that's three too many. Yeah. She apologized mm-hmm. unprompted in the Alexis hour on Monday when all the press was sitting down at a round table with her. Right. She segued from something she was saying to say, well, you know, I also want to apologize to the fans for the Toronto match. Fine. In her post-match acceptance speech of her run-up trophy in Cincinnati, she apologized to the fans on court there. Yeah. And then before she left Cincinnati, she released a note via social media where again she she apologized. Yeah. And I, my God, like feeling that I don't doubt that it's an earnest and genuine feeling that she needs. She feels she needs to apologize. But what that must what must that feel like as the number two player in the world to be offering that many apologies for your poor play within one week? Right. And it's it's tough because she's having one of the best years of her career, if not the best year. And but it's still there are these black marks, right? She's getting she's putting herself in the positions that she should be in. Mm-hmm. She's talented. She said before the tournament, I've learned to deserve to know I've learned that I deserve to be here. And she does, but then we get these finals and they're just confusing from us from a base level Simona's game doesn't rise to the level of somebody like Garbina or other of the top players at their peak so start with that right if Garbina is playing her best it's gonna be a nightmare match for Simona to win right but but still she's not able to be competitive in these matches I think one of our followers I can't remember forgive me said Simona should have jumped her should have thrown in drop shots, lobs, just junk balls, moon balls, anything to mess up the rhythm. Because a player like Garbinier loves that rhythm. Like, Simona was very often just rallying from the baseline. That's not going to do it. It's just, it's not. Especially with Muguruza playing that well. She's gotten to points in matches where she's in positions to win. So she's found multiple different ways to lose in these situations, (laughs) right? So maybe that's something for her to take take good feelings from that you know she's ha- she's been in multiple different kinds of situations and she just needs to get get one under her under, in her bag yeah I mean she's won big titles before and I see a lot of people clapping back on social media saying oh she's a head case she's this she's that she's not deserving of the number one ranking 
Like, listen, she played serious ball to get to number two in the world. So let's not demean her. I'm just curious to see how she's going to move past this. Because she has enough game. And should she have... Should she have won on Sunday? She'd have been a deserving number one. Right. And remember, the number one ranking does not necessarily mean that you are the best player alive. No. It's it's an arbitrarily designed system based on points. So that argument can be made. Let's move on to the men's final. Okay. But we can talk about the semis quickly. I don't think we talked about this on the last episode. The Nick Curios. David Ferrer semifinal was one of my favorite events of the whole week. I walked down and walk, watched it kind of in the bowl. I was just standing against the, uh-huh. uh, the railing. And seeing Nick serve up close is exciting. But also, the crowd was a lot more... Uh, I don't want to say neutral, because I think they were still leaning toward Ferrer. For sure. But they were definitely giving more support to Nick than they had against Rafa. Because that was just an embarrassing display, the way they behaved against Rafa. That was one of the things you were definitely looking out for in that match. Oh, yeah. To see how the crowd would respond to him that night. Because I was ready to pounce, you know? I would have been really pissed off. You'd have jumped somebody in the crowd? No, just with words, Mm. you know? But they were a bit more receptive to Nick. He put on a great performance. David plays a very frustrating game. And if Nick hadn't been in the right headspace, you could see how things could have gone very badly. There was a lot of discussion during that match on Twitter about the nature of Ferrer's game that he's not just a counterpuncher and that people who describe him as just a counterpuncher don't really know what's going on. Yeah, and there are a lot of tennis writers who think he's trash. Yeah. <laughs> who think he plays junk tennis. And from my from where I was sitting against Dominic Team and then Nikirios, I didn't see that. I saw a lot of uber aggression, aggressive returning, trying oh, to get to the net. So much net play. Yeah. In the match against Nick, he was at net three or four times in just the first game. Right. I think it, it worked so well against Team, and it frustrated him that I think David probably went out there saying, "This kid is talented, but he can break down mentally," and I've played my myself into this tournament. It's not like he got there by accident. One of the gems from Twitter throughout the tournament was John Isner's loss being described as Grigor Dimitrov taking out the Confederate statue. (laughs) (laughs) You can say that now that we're safely across the border into Canada. Every time I went to make fun of Isner, I just had to look around. Right. Because you never know. Don't know. Don't Because somebody pointed out that the county the tournament is in was a very deeply red county for the presidential election. That was Ben. Uh, yeah, it was Ben Rothenberg at, at dinner. Which surprised me a little. I thought it would have been a little more even. Because there are a lot of the people who live there are highly educated. But I guess they're just rich and Republican. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, Isner lost in two tiebreak sets. Funny story, that match happened after the first semifinal on the women's side. And that was Pliskova versus Muguruza. So we got on site to watch that. And then we're like, well, we got to spend this Target gift card before we leave the States. So we are <laughs> we are leaving the grounds for the semifinal. And we're going to go spend some money. And we're on a tight, tight schedule. And guess what? When we're in Target, the women's match starts. 
and the first set is like practically over by the time we can rush back because Sloan was just giving you nothing out there. You say that you say that so mean spiritedly. We already discussed <laughs> that she was okay. hampered by too much matches, too many matches. Sure, yeah, and the scheduling really yeah. went awry for her. That was not her fault at all. She played a three-set match against Makarova the, the day before, as well as another match. Men's final, Dimitrov versus Kyrgios. And given all that had been written and said about the men's draw, the withdrawals, they're just being three top ten seeds in the world. Sorry, three top ten players in the world in the tournament to begin with. And well, then, seeds, actually, because Dimitrov was seeded ten, but not even ranked that's in true. the top ten. Anyway, there were, there were no top players there. To get a final with Kyrgios Dimitrov, that was about as best as could be hoped for after the quarterfinal stage. Right. Unless, I mean, organizers probably would have loved an Isner final. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I think we got, well, I think we got better tennis. Yeah. From a Dimitrov Kyrgios What was final. it, six three seven five? Yeah, it wasn't uh, amazing. I was very impressed with the way Grigor Dimitrov handled the moment. This is his biggest final in his career. Uh, not the biggest stage. He's been a semi-finalist at Wimbledon. And the Australian Open. Yeah. But he he knew what he had to do out there. He is so fit. He's a great athlete. He moved incredibly well. He got almost everything back. Listen, I watched him last year in the semi-finals in a thrilling night match against Chilich. Mm. Lose 5-7 in the third. And so he clearly... And he said as much, enjoys playing in Cincinnati. Yeah. I think he talked about how it's a lot more quiet here. He's probably able to, to go under the radar a little bit right. more in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And he so he follows up the semifinals from last year, makes the final. And when he's serving for the match, the biggest title of his career, he's down maybe, I want to say 15-30 or love 15. A little bit tense to start the service game. Uh-huh. And out of nowhere, he hits this blazing forehand winner on the run past Nick at net. And at that point, you're like, well, yeah, this is definitely happening. <laughs> yes. Grigor was obviously very, very excited to win. And almost a little relieved, I think. But I think that he's somebody, if he can pull things together, likes the spotlight. And people seem to react very well to him. Obviously, he's he's a gorgeous guy. But the fans are going crazy, don't you think? Tennis is truly a global sport because anywhere you go, you will find a pocket of fans supporting any player. Yeah. And so Grigor's fans were there. When he came out on the champion's balcony, they were like, Grisha, Grisha, Grisha. <laughs> and he waved to them like he was waving to his, his loyal subjects. Yes. He was uh, he was glowing in press too, and he was only asked a few questions, but he gave about five paragraph responses to each <laughs> one. He answered questions that hadn't even been asked. Bottom line, Grigor, good for you. At long last, he has his Masters one thousand title. Perhaps a slam is coming soon. We shall see. Who knows? I, he surely has the talent to do it. That that was never the question. Mm-hmm. He has the shots. That but the. That pretty much just covers the tennis, right? Yeah. I feel between... Oh, we got a little bit of noise here. There's this big old truck. Between talking on the podcast, the Insta videos we've been doing, the diaries we've been writing, 
I'm just about done. Yeah, with there's, there's about more the stuff on thebodyserve.com that we've written about the tennis uh-huh. as well. So check that out. Next up, we're finally giving you our interview with Australian player Ashley Barty. Yes. Who is a highly accomplished doubles player, four times in the finals of Grand Slams with Casey Delacqua. She has been to the final of all four. They're all different. And she's also really coming into her own as a singles player. She took out Venus Williams at this tournament. She reached the final in Birmingham. Yes. And lost to Kvitova. She took out Muguruza. She won Kuala Lumpur earlier this year. So We initially put in for the doubles team together, Casey and Ash. But it seems that Casey doesn't do much press these days. Or she picks her spots, (laughs) which is fine. So we were happy to settle for Ash. Yes, it was not settling, believe me. Yes, that was a very bad thing that I just said. No, I know you didn't mean it. I did not mean it like that because I was I I watched Ash beat Venus and I wasn't even mad about it because she played that well. Mm -hmm. And uh, she showed a lot of respect to Venus on court. Said that it was a great honor to even play her. Mm -hmm. You'll hear more from about that in the interview because I did ask her about that. I was struck in the moment by how well. As just a 20 or 21 year old, Ash was able to articulate such deference toward the legends of the game. In this particular moment, Venus, when so many of the young players A, aren't that articulate or aren't able to express themselves, yet alone being able to talk about somebody else and contextualize properly those greats place in history. So without further ado, here is Ashley Barty. Thanks for sitting down for us. Okay, so welcome to the Body Surf. We're doing this podcast from Canada. Uh, now, the one can we have a lot of Australian listeners who'll be very excited that you're on the show. <laughs> Congrats on your last couple of weeks in particular. Two big results, round of 16s. And then this tournament, you beat Venus Williams on center court. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, it was, it's been a really exciting uh, two weeks sort of to start the my US Open swing in summer but um yeah this week we really it was really nice and to play well against venus on such a big stage was pretty exciting and um you know it's just an honor to be able to share a court with her and a privilege to be able to play on such a big stage with her so it's just really exciting for me to to play well and to come away with the wins bonus you're really young (laughs) (laughs) and uh, i can't recall hearing many young players speak with such deference and respect and so eloquently about some of the legends of the game where do you think that comes from that maturity oh i'm i'm not sure i think um obviously the the people uh, people around me my my family my mum and dad and and obviously the the people that i have around me um have brought me up very well i hope um (laughs) and and very respectful but no, I think for, for someone like Venus, she's paved the way um, for many young players and um, arguably changed the game. Um, so I think it's just really exciting to, to still see her out here doing so well. How were you able to stay so calm? And, you know, you're playing in the U.S., Venus is from here, it's obviously a, a great stage, and you just kind of went out there and took care of business. We watched the match and it was really impressive. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, no, I actually didn't really think... Um, much about it um, that obviously Venus is from here and sort of when we walked out in the, in the crowd cheered I was like oh that's right we're <laughs> in America but um, no for me I just try and approach every match as, as best and the same that I can um, I, I like to think that I'm sort of quite placid and calm and 
I try and um, bring that out of the court as well. You did, so you didn't notice that at all? Because in your uh, first doubles match, uh, you were out of maybe court seven, I think, yep. and you were playing an American team. And it seemed like you, especially you served out the match with like four amazing serves. <laughs> I mean, you quieted the crowd, but they didn't seem to be clapping too much. It was such a pro-American crowd. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, Katie, actually, I met her for the first time at Wimbledon this year. We were uh, staying in the, with the same family. Um, so when, when I saw that we drew each other, I was like, oh, it's funny how it happens sometimes in tennis. But um, she's obviously a local girl, and, and Case and I knew that. And when we went, that was, it's just nice to, to play in front of a crowd, though. Um, Americans love doubles. They, they love tennis, but especially doubles. And, you know, it's just really exciting to get out there and have the energy from the crowd as well. What does it feel like to have that big of a weapon, to be able to just close out a match with just your serve? Oh, I think it's, for me, in doubles especially, it's it's nice when Casey and I communicate and we, we have certain patterns and certain calls and, you know, two of those serves um, I call myself and two of them Casey called, um, where she knows where I want to go mm. on big points or she knows where she wants to move on big points. So um, for us, it was just about doing sort of our right plays that we wanted to do to try and close out a match. Obviously, you have a very successful partnership with Casey Delacqua uh, as a doubles partner. What do you think about your relationship and makes it special? From the day dot when I met Case, we gelled <laughs> really well. Uh, we really did. It was, um, you know, the first time I met her, the first time I sent her a text to ask if, if she wanted to play doubles, it was, we just hit it off like a house on fire. And um, I think I obviously had a lot of respect for what Case has done in both singles and doubles. and. For me, just starting out my career, uh, she was sort of the perfect person to to act as my big sister, my travel mm -hmm. mom. That's always always what she's been, and she's my best friend and a, a genuine mate. And uh, on court, what do you think about your games complements each other so well? I think the righty-lefty um, combination helps a lot, um, but we also have de very different styles, um, especially on serve, very different serves, um, a different shape of ball. and. I think for us, we just, we love to have fun. So I think we don't try and, we don't worry about too much that's happened in the past. If, you know, especially in this short format, um, you can play two or three bad points and that's the match. So we just try and take every point as it comes um, and try and do the best that we can. You've both played in a bunch of doubles Grand Slam finals at this point. Casey has played in a few more than you have. And she's a little bit older. You refer to her as your tour mom. Do you feel a little bit responsible to get her over the hump? Because you'll have that much more time to get yours? Yes and no. Um, if uh, if and when we're lucky enough to, to win a slam title, I'll, I wouldn't want to do it with anyone but Case. Um, and yeah, we've had a phenomenal grand slam career of seconds. <laughs> um, but yeah, it would be nice to, to win a slam, but we've got to keep putting ourselves in the right positions. And, and even this year, we've had um, two quarters and a final. It's been a pretty solid year, so hopefully we can um, have a good US Open and just put ourselves in a position again where we can, where we can try and take home the title. Do you find any specific challenges about balancing a singles career with a, a successful doubles career as well, especially now that your singles career is really taking off? Uh, sometimes it's challenging when you're in qualies um, the following weeks with some with some cuts and sign-ins and things like that. But for me, I like to play a tournament, finish the tournament that I'm in, and then worry about the next one. Um, and usually if uh, you're worrying about making sign-ins, you're doing pretty well uh, in, in the week. It's it's never nice when you when you're out of a tournament on Monday or Tuesday and you're yeah. um, twiddling your thumbs thinking of how to how to fill your week before you leave. So I think if you're having success, whether it's in singles or doubles, it's a good week. You qualified in Toronto, qualified again here. You're this close to not having to have to qualify anymore. Is that something that's really on your to do list? Yeah, it certainly would be nice. <laughs> um, but you know, I think um, 
it's also a nice feeling when you do qualify because you really feel like you you can get your teeth stuck into the tournament and um, sometimes it's it's nicer to play two qualies matches or three qualies matches and then you know depending on who you draw it's it's always tough if you play a qualifier because um, they've played the matches and, and they've sort of got through maybe a little bit ugly sometimes and mm-hmm. found a way but um, yeah I mean it's for me this year it's just been an accumulation of matches um, which has been really good and I think it's it's definitely helped me to this point. You took a, a break from tennis early in your career and you played some cricket. Um, what do you think the break has done for you now that you're back? Yeah, I think for me it was just time to, uh, it allowed me to mentally refresh. Um, obviously, uh, coming back um, onto tennis, uh, into tennis when I was um, 20 is a little bit different to, to when you're 17 and 18. And I think for me it was just, I'm just more mature now. Um, I'm happy, I'm healthy. I'm happy off court, um, so I think that's that's the most important thing, and I just feel refreshed and ready. And I think embracing the tennis lifestyle a little bit more. I wasn't quite ready for it, didn't know what to expect, um, and now I'm just really happy and enjoying it. One last question before we end with a couple lighter, fair questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, prior to this year, I would say most of your single success came on grass, and you won Wimbledon Juniors, right? Uh, what do you think has been the big difference in being able to translate more into hard courts or is that just a natural progression of things for you? Uh, I think a bit of a natural progression. Um, obviously, as as a junior, I had some good success um, uh, at Wimbledon uh, and won a few grade ones uh, on hard court and clay as well, but I hadn't really played um, a lot on clay. It's, it's not uh, massive in Australia, so I think for me even this year to be able to play three or four weeks was sort of a clay court season, something I've never done, um, which was really cool. And and obviously it's nice to, to have success in Australia and this is my first time playing a, a US Open summer. I've only ever played the the Open before, so it was nice to come over here and, and have a little bit of success as well. Now into the more fun questions. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Everybody who's been on the show, we've asked this question because okay. we did an entire episode called Tennis Divas. Where we we sat there and we thought about, well, say, for example, who would Serena Williams be as a tennis diva? We said, well, probably Beyonce, right? So Svetlana Kuznetsova, she said that she would be Rihanna. Oh, me. (laughs) Sonia Mirza said that she'd be a cross between Adele and Beyonce. (laughs) And she kind of had a laugh at Svetlana's pick of Rihanna as well. We just spoke with Francoise Abanda this week and she picked Sierra. She's into, I guess, 2000s R&B. Okay. Um, so, question to you, and don't take the easy way out with Kylie Minogue. <laughs> <laughs> <Come on. laughs> Who would be your tennis diva? Oh, I actually have no idea. Doesn't have to be a singer, it can be sort no, of... any kind of pop culture person. See, I'm really boring, that's the problem. No, come <laughs> on. No. I am. Um, it's okay. It's not a test. No, it's okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like someone. What well, what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, it's really eclectic. It's yeah. really weird. Um, I can go from eighties to now like See, that. I think eighties music is totally underrated and gets a bad rap. Eighties is the best. Yeah. Um, okay, who am I thinking? Let's just go with a just for fun. Let's go like Kate Hudson. Okay. All right. Good choice. <laughs> what do you do during the rain delays? Um. Usually either talking to family if it's uh, if we're at home, if the time zone allows it, or just, yeah, scrolling through Candy Crush, bit of music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there technological differences between you and Casey? 
So in terms of like you're younger, you're probably more in tune with all the, because I'm 30, well, wow, I'm 33 tomorrow, and I have no clue how to do Snapchat. Snapchat, thank you. So like, do the two of you go through these kind of things where vice versa, you don't get what the other person's Case doing? Is, Case is really good with technology, mm -hmm. better than she thinks. Um, but I think sometimes with computers or hard drives, um, I like to think of myself as a little bit tech savvy, but with apps and um I suppose social media, she's amazing. Um, but, yeah, and then sometimes she'll come out and say, oh, I remember when I used to listen to a tape, and I said, mate, I don't even talk about it. Um, but, yeah, I think she's pretty technologically savvy. But, um, yeah, there are some things, especially with computers, hard drives, that I like to, to help her out with a little bit. Do you have a go-to Netflix show? Are you a Netflix person? Uh, not really, but I'm a big sort of um, movie and TV series. I watch the same 20 movies over and over and over. Oh, yeah. Just a rom-com, pretty light-hearted. Um, we don't have to think too much. Well, thanks so much for awesome. taking the time. No worries, really thank you. It. Cheers, Good thank luck. you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. I hope you all enjoyed Ash's words. Thanks again to her because she actually gave us an interview after losing. Yes. Which is unusual because most players we've found will only say yes to these sort of side interviews if they've won a match. And it's not just that she lost. We've been trying to get this interview for a couple days. It was interrupted by rain on the Thursday, mm. where it would have happened that day potentially. And then the next day, she had to go back and play her... She played singles and lost in the morning. And then she played doubles and lost right. as well, they I believe. Lost the tail... It was like the tail end of their match against Shafajova Streetsova. Yeah which they lost, and then a few hours later, we got word that she had agreed to talk to us. Maybe I'm getting the timeline on that wrong. I'm not sure if the singles and the doubles were in the same day, oh, but bottom line, yeah, between, yeah. over the course of like 24 hours, she had a lot going on, and a lot of that was messed up by rain, you know? So she did not have to give this interview, yeah. and we appreciate it. It was nice. Yeah, <laughs> and let me tell you, she was engaged. I know we say that a lot. We said that about Francoise. But she looked you in the eye. She talked to us like we were human beings. Yeah. I, she just seems like a pretty down-to-earth person. Yeah. I like talking to these young players yes. because they haven't been out here for a super long time. They're not as jaded by the process. Yeah. What's next? What's next? Next, we're going to do our listener mailbag. So, let's get right into it. Tom Heron submitted this question. In light of the four tiebreak sets in the men's semifinals and no breaks is the serve too powerful in today's men's game i i'll start okay i i think toward the late 90s and early 2000s men's tennis fam famously got a little boring there were a lot of shootouts between servers you know the philippusis um sampras that that sort of era yeah i mean sampras had more than just a serve obviously one of the greats but a lot happened since then to slow down the balls and also the courts. So I think that ushered in a, an era that paved the way, kind of created the conditions for the big four, right? Allowed more baseline play. So I actually don't think that the serve is too much of a factor in men's tennis because I think we still have quite a variety of styles. And the thing is, this was also symptomatic of the players who made it to the last four. Well, the issue of the big serve doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? 
you have to look at it in terms of how are people returning serve as well. And outside of the the super top guys, there it's a big deficiency in a lot of men's tennis that so many of these mm-hmm. players aren't able to return serve at a decent enough clip to avoid so many tie okay. breaks. Fair enough. And the, the bigger issue from that is that you're getting all these short points with not many rallies, not much variety in the game. And that's where I've taken most issue with the big servers in the past. Mm. Just from an aesthetic perspective, I just don't quite enjoy it. Right. I don't like to see four aces end the game. I'm, I'm guess probably... I guess I'm a little bit still scarred by all those Sampras Agassi matchups right. back in the day. <laughs> I think it's fine as long as it doesn't dominate the game. Yeah. As long as everyone's not playing like that. I don't want to... I don't really want to watch a game where, like, somebody out of nowhere, like maybe Jezja Janovic, can come and win Wimbledon on the strength of a serve mm-hmm. and then win nothing else. That's not interesting to me. But see, even somebody like Ivan Isovich, who made multiple Wimbledon finals, he had a lot more variety to his game as yeah. well. He could volley, he yeah. could do a whole lot of different things. It's when somebody's one-dimensional, that's what I take issue with most. Uh-huh. So I don't know if that answers your question, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're at crisis point And right I now. don't think we're able to... We don't have the facts and the stats to be able to say definitively one way or the other whether the big serving is affecting the sport mm-hmm. in a negative way. Okay, so Kathy Presper, whom we met, she was one of the redheaded twins. Oh. Yep. So she's Molly Tiger's sister. Kathy and Molly. We met both Lovely to them. meet you. They're from Ohio. They listen to us. I'm always fascinated by how people find us. Mm-hmm. So they found us. They listened to other podcasts and just encountered us. And uh, I asked them to tell everyone at their tennis club about us. But that, like, that's how you spread the word, you know? So it was really great to meet you both. But Kathy submitted this question. Who thought it would be a good idea to put the amazing Sloan on Tiny Court 4? That's the thing. We've talked about scheduling on the last episode. But Sloan really got dicked around, pardon my French, yeah. by the scheduling. She didn't play on center court until the, the semifinal. semifinal match. And unfortunately, she wasn't able... To, to show off what she can really do. Muguruza, by contrast, played every match, all five on center court. Right. Which, including of course, her, she's, she's a star. But including her first match against Haddad Mayo, mm-hmm. which, who wants to see that? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, I'm, I'm having a hard time going to bat for Sloan when Karolina Pliskova is playing back-to-back matches on court three and she's your defending champion yeah. and world number, and one. number one. So I think it's more emblematic of what the hell was going on well, Period. I think we can see clearly that the women's game will always have to fight harder for the same recognition, for the same scheduling, and that not only happens at Wimbledon, but at a place like this. I would have thought that Sloane, being American, would warrant a center court spot. She played on grandstand, I think, once or twice, but, I mean, what are you do? What are you doing putting her on court for when you're already forcing her to play twice in one day? Mm-hmm. I didn't, yeah. And that was a day when uh, we talked about this another time, maybe on the other mailbag, last episode. They didn't start playing grandstand until 1 o'clock that day. Mm. They could easily have yes. put a match at 11 o'clock. Absolutely. Okay, Mara Lawson, she asks, how did you guys get into tennis? That is a great question. And it might be a question we've answered before, I'm not quite sure. Probably. Or that we offered Probably. on our own. Um, 
So I'm not going to get into a, a whole long drawn out thing with this. But I remember exactly the very first tennis match I watched. It was in 1994 Wimbledon final. Martina Navratilova going for her 10th Wimbledon title. And she loses to Conchita Martinez. And I, I just fell in love with the sport since. I'd never played competitively in high school. I think I, I entered one little casual, what do you call it, when like a club... It's just like when kids play against each other, like a tournament was organized. Yeah. You have, you have in some college, right? No, in oh. high school. You, you call it something. Intramuros? Yes. Okay. So um, I did one of those tournament ones, and I, I think I made the quarters or semis. I beat somebody I should never have beaten to. It was quite great. <laughs> you know why? One of those shit because talkers. He, because he junk balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this kid talked a lot of shit. I'll never forget it. And I beat his ass. So there you go. <laughs> Talk shit, get hit. Right? And so I've just always watched tennis since. I, when, when we met, it was a, a common interest. Yes, it was. And you you came to tennis probably about five years before I did. I uh, I really started being interested in, if you think about like the Venus Envy era. So probably like 1999, I would say. It was Venus, Serena, and then Capriati is actually who really got me excited about the game. And of course, you know, we've talked about this before. She's since shown herself to be a little wacky and mean, but... I don't think you need to give that disclaimer to make yourself <laughs> feel better about liking Capriati. I do, Capriati Because that's what that is. Okay, that this is, is all yeah. about you being self-serving by giving that disclaimer. But Jennifer's 2001 breakthrough, kind of her re-breakthrough, when she won the first two majors of the year, and then the following year when she saved match points and beat Hingis in the Australian Open final, that was exciting stuff. That made me absolutely love the sport. And it, it took me a little while, actually, to to come to men's tennis. And that was Rafa. 2006 is when I fell in love with Rafael Nadal and men's tennis by extension. I was an Agassi fan. And so after Wimbledon that year in 94, Agassi won the U.S. Open. I still remember he was wearing that blue, white, and black outfit with the ponytail, with the cap. And I remember when he went down, collapsed to his knees, and put his hands to the sky. It's a, a vivid image in my tennis history. Yeah. And uh, I was a fan of his, by extension, not a fan of Pete's. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, I don't know, I didn't really have many male favorites over the years since during that period. It was pretty much just all Andre till the end of his career. Okay. Dr. Mop asks, which players were your favorite interviews and pressers? I'm glad you asked, because this gives us an opportunity to share just a few more press clips with you. They're not going to be full pressers this time, but just some interesting things that stuck out. I have to say, I've, I've talked about Muguruza this week, so she's definitely one of them. Y'all are probably sick of us right. talking about Muguruza by this point. I just want to give you a little taste of Muguruza's presser after she won the final. She's remarkably down-to-earth for a big-time champion because I've seen her strutting around the grounds before and I had a totally different impression. I thought she was going to be so cocky. And she definitely walks the walk. You know, like, she has the, the confidence that you'd expect, but she is very thoughtful and she does make eye contact and, and thinks through the questions and gives you like a good quote to take back to your story. She tries to be funny. So so here are a few bits from Muguruza. Garbina, you've had some tough opponents all week. 
you managed to get through some tough three set matches. Do you feel like today was the like the culmination of all that good play coming together to be your best performance of the week? I think so. I think today was uh, my best performance of the tournament because um, I feel like I played 20 hours in that court. You know, I had very long <laughs> matches and uh, and it was just there. I think I did few little mistakes and uh, my shots were very you know placed and. I think I was doing almost everything right there. Is that the beginning of the week somebody said he's his next little close to the palette and give you a 100% shot, what would you have said? They said that? No, if someone had said that to you. Oh. Well, that's a tough draw. That's a tough draw, you know, because uh, I, all the players that I played, they're in a good moment. and uh, but. I knew I was, it was going to be a tough uh, draw because all these tournaments are very difficult. I felt in Toronto I had a tough draw as well. So, you know, I feel it's very equal. We always talk about it, but I'm happy that I, you know, I, I was almost in the locker room in the, in the third match. I turned it around, I won, and then that gave me, you know, a boost for the next day. Did, did you feel yeah. after the, the keys match, after saving the match points, that, you, you know, some players say they, they feel like, yeah, I could have been home, so I just play freely and things like that or were you, it, it just didn't even occur to you do you even remember the fact that you saved match points i do remember but i didn't feel like oh now i'm no i felt like good i turned it around i have more chances to play i want to go for it you know i was not thinking oh like less pressure or something i was like hungry you know i wonder if i'm playing goodness so and now i have another chance i was close to not having it so i took the opportunity finally do you think that something has clicked for you mentally or emotionally since the French Open? Is, is something different about you? Since the French Open? No, I don't feel any difference. I feel like this year, you know, my goal was to improve a lot. These matches at the beginning of the tournaments, my consistency and be top there. So I'm thinking every day that when I go to play and I'm really improving that. French Open was just another tournament, a tricky tournament. But I feel like I improve a lot as a tennis player. Now, the other one that I wanted to mention, Nick Kyrgios. I went to his presser after he won the semifinal and also after he lost the final against Grigor. Nick is, I came back and I told you, Nick is fascinating. Like, he's just, whether or not you like him, I know people have a lot of bad feelings that are not going to go away. Nick is so fascinating. You told me that one of the best ways to get clicks or shares of our work is to say something nice about Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> because really and truly, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Or say something neutral about right. Nick. People you simply so tweeted pissed. out that he said in his press after his semifinal that it's not so much important for him to be remembered as a great tennis player as it is to be remembered as someone who was kind to people. Right. And people mocked him left, right, and center. Oh my God, of they course. Said, say that to Donna and Stan. Yep. And like, listen, say, yes, say that to Donna, but Stan does not need to be defended by y'all. Like, he doesn't deserve it. No. And he doesn't need it. So, just putting that out. We've there. talked about how Donna's been hard done by this whole thing, so yes. absolutely yes. Yes. But then to pretend, and this is also walking back some of my own words in the past. Oh, oh yeah, mine Where too. I've said that you know, he's a grown man, he's 20 years old, he's 19 years old, we should expect better. Right. Well, at the, I guess at the same time... At the same time, 19 like, and 20 is pretty young. 
if that's the worst of it that you've said to somebody I mean I've just said a lot of yeah. really bad things to people when I was 19 and 20 <laughs> so then yeah. have that disqualify me a year or two later from saying something like mm. Nick said that you can't say you want to be remembered as a nice person who did well and right by people because you said this thing two years ago right. I think that's what I took issue with so I was struck by Nick's sincerity uh, he obviously he's in a he's a, in a good space right a much better space than he was in the past weeks and months so he's probably giving a better impression in press so I acknowledge that I may have seen maybe one of the best versions of Nick that he's presented recently yes. so for that I guess I was lucky but I was just struck by how open he was because you'll hear well I don't know what we're going to include yet. <laughs> but he spoke about the death of his grandparents. He was pretty emotional about it, and I was surprised that he was willing to talk about it. I, I always try and pull you back in when you frame it like that. Okay. He didn't just speak about it, he was asked about it. Well, he sure, was willing. It's different. But he didn't have to speak. No, but it's just from the listener's perspective, I think that's an important okay. distinction. fair enough. Yeah, he's just like an interesting guy. And Nick is a complicated figure on his face like before any of the trappings and any of the outrageous behavior come along Nick will always be complicated because of who he is and what he looks like and so you add like his brashness these these missteps in the past and I mean he inspires passion on all sides <laughs> like people who are fans of Nick are so passionate and defensive because they feel that he's been attacked and, and on the other side Man, like, if you hate Nick, you really hate Nick. Right? I, and I just, when I see a crowd react that badly to him, I have to think, this may not all be about race, but it certainly is about race. At least in part. He presents, I mean, he uses signifiers of hip-hop culture. I think, I really think that Americans see him as black. And by extension, thuggish. Right. And especially within the context of this overused cliche, the Lily White establishment of tennis, he is somebody who sticks out not dissimilarly from how Venus and Serena stuck out with their braids in the late yeah. 90s. Because, I mean, representation is one thing. Like, even being in the sport and being black is a big deal, and it continues to be a big deal. But when you're black in a way that is confrontational or confusing, or, or a way that white people just cannot understand then that's a whole other thing. Yeah, and people like to make this distinction. Well, the comparison doesn't hold water because he's not American, he's not African-American, he's Malaysian and Greek. Yeah. So it's like, listen, everybody know about the one-drop rule, and everybody knows that in North America and a lot of the discourse surrounding Nick in this way comes from North America. Mm. It has to do with what people see visually. People see him as a black person. But it's also very charged in Australia because he's the way that certain people have spoken about him publicly. Yes, is, absolutely. You know, you're not a real Australian. You're you make us ashamed. You shouldn't represent this country. And so, like, what is what is wrapped up in those and things? Where should he be situated then? Right. Because if you're going to re reject who he is in America and then reject who he is in Australia, <laughs> right? Where is it appropriate he, to situate Nick Curious? Exactly. Like and frame him in a way that's okay to talk about. Mm. 
So, anyway, listen to Nick. Come to your own conclusions. I just think he's an absolutely great person to hear speak for himself. Um, what does it mean to you to uh, possibly win a Masters 1000 event tomorrow against Dimitrov? Uh, yeah, I'm obviously excited, but I mean, it's just another tennis match for me. I'm going to go out there and, um, you know, compete and try and serve big and play big, and whatever happens, happens, I guess. You paid David a lot of respect yeah. and compliments on court, on court interview after the match. With respect to the 2003 match, you said he shared a lot of things with you that helped you in your game. Granted, that was four years ago, but can you elaborate on anything that you've incorporated? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I played him when I qualified for the US Open, and I think his coach just met up with my coach, and they kind of wrote down a big, on a big sheet of paper what I would, what I had to improve on. And um, one of the things I will never forget on the sheet was learn to suffer. <laughs> That's what David Ferrer said to Nick Kyrgios when I was eating KFC every day, pretty fat, um, not a great athlete, and I was like, oh, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and then, so yeah, I mean, yeah, so that's one thing I did remember from the big sheet. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was, he's always been a really kind guy to me. Uh, you said uh, yesterday, or whenever it was, that you don't take yourself too serious. I think a lot of us admire that about you. But um, you know, David Ferrer, he was just in here, and he was saying that you're gonna be number one in the world one day, or you're at least gonna have a lot of opportunities. Do you think about that? And there are a lot of people in your life who are telling you, come on, mate, go for it, you can do it. Yeah, um, you know, I just, there's just other things that, you know, are more important to me than, than tennis, you know. It's just a game. Um, you know, there's, there's worse things happening in the world right now than me losing a tennis, for instance, if I lost that tennis match. So I guess that's part of the reason why I can't take it so seriously. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, I've had, uh, you know, family members, you know, that have passed away and, you know, I haven't seen them enough or I didn't, didn't get to see them enough because of tennis. And I guess that could be a reason why I can't really give myself fully to the game as well. Um, but, you know, I mean, if I'm number one or I'm number 500, I mean, I'm just a tennis player at the end of the day. So, yeah, I don't want to really be remembered as, you know, an unbelievable tennis player. I would rather, rather be remembered as someone who, you know, was, was kind to, to people and stuff like that. Okay, let's move on to another question. Catherine Shaw. Well, I said this on a previous episode as well. I just want to throw Joe Conta in there as well. Oh, for me, yeah. you talked about the two you thought. Oh, sorry. Were wonderful. I stepped. On I you. thought Joe Conta was amazing. So there. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, back to Catherine Shaw's question. Did you find all the ads and changeover music over the loudspeakers um, jarring for your experience watching the match? I know like a lot of people are bugged by that, but I I guess I'm used to it now. I just don't really notice it. Cincinnati is very loud. There's like a lot of music playing. If you're on grandstand, you can definitely hear the music from center. And for us who we were impressed, I, it was not a problem for me whatsoever. Yeah. Because if it's a changeover, if I'm, if I'm not moving to another court, I'm sitting there and I'm tweeting. And so just from, it allows me to not pay attention to the court to be able to know when I next need to pay attention to the yeah. court. And if I'm up in the press box, the same thing goes. Like I can know, I can keep track of what's going on in the match based on what's going on yeah. with all those ads and those noises. I will say my family was pretty surprised at like how much music was playing during the match on changeovers and stuff. My mom said she thought it felt more like a baseball game or, you know, another, it didn't feel very tennis 
Yeah. Um, Which for her was different from Toronto. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, she didn't expect that. Um, but I don't get the impression. I think the players are kind of like, yeah, this is the U.S. It's loud. It's obnoxious. We just get used to it. Didn't you get that feeling? I didn't see anybody being bothered by it, really. Well, because some people were asked. Oh, really? Yeah. I yeah, missed yeah. that. I forgot who it was, but they were like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's not a big deal. So, yeah. It was a good question, though. What else we have? Um, Dr. Scholes, Mr. Shola, he was so generous to give us another Chuck Fuck Mary. Oh. Also known as Fuck Mary Kill. <laughs> and look at this trio. Dominic Team, Grigor Dimitrov, Nick Kyrgios. Again, this one is easy for me. Yeah, and I think we'll probably have the same exact thing. Uh-huh. So, um, F. <laughs> Dummy. Dummy, yep. Espe- oh my god, especially after that Vogue shoot, which I'm just going to crop Sasha Zverev right out of. <laughs> Dominic looked amazing. And let me tell you, he gives you everything and more in person. He was giving Bellamy realness in that, in that photo shoot. <laughs> and I would caution if you, you don't, if you don't yeah. know what that is, do not Google it at work. Do not. Moms, do not Google that. No. Uh, Mary. Mary, you marry uh, Grigor. He has yeah, the most money. Definitely. Grigor is a sensitive guy. Yep. He seems pretty sweet. I think he'll take care of you. He's got money. I mean... His hairline is receding a little, but he's rich. You can fix that. Look at LeBron. <laughs> and I'm so sorry, Nick, because I'm really coming around to you. But in this situation, I have to chuck you. Yeah. I mean, it's that's Scholl's fault. That's not our fault. I know. We didn't make the game. But, I mean, I just, I couldn't handle the drama with Nick. I couldn't be married to him. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> Even if I'm starting to like him. What's next? Okay. One more. I think we have time for one more question. We're going to run out of recording space here. Are these the most dangerous non-seeds at the Open? This is from Stephen Brown. Sharapova, Shafajova, Makarova, Stevens, and Ash Barty. Are these the most dangerous non-seeds going into the U.S. Open? They are some of the more prominent names that you should be looking out for. Yeah. The one side note I will add to that is every year I'm guilty of this every slam rather I don't pay enough attention to the qualifiers Mm -hmm. because a lot of times and since we've been following this hardcore swing in the summer you have qualifiers who go on decent runs win two or three matches here or there don't quite get under the cut line in time to make the main draw and then they go to Flushing Meadows and they play and win three more qualifying matches And so they enter the first round with, well, probably way too many matches to make a deep run, but definitely enough match play and wins to cause serious damage in the first couple rounds. Yeah, playing into form is really a very strong X factor. I say you you definitely have to look at the Americans. Cece Bellis was very close to being seeded. Uh She's in the 30s, and she's had a a really a great year. Um, Someone like Kayla Day can break through at the U.S. Open. It seems like we always have this story of an American maybe reaching the third round or better. I will say look out for Francoise Abanda. She'll be qualifying most likely. And I have a vested interest in her doing well, so I can say I told you so. I'm with it. (laughs) (laughs) 
look for Donna Vekic. Dasha Kazakina is close to being seated as well. Didn't have a great performance in uh, in Cincinnati, but who knows? And you wanted to mention Alize Cornet as well. Did I? Uh, you told me to write her down. Yeah, I don't know if I wanted to like mention her oh, and do okay. a whole drano thing. Though. All right, so yeah, she just there, beat we'll just drop it in. Putin save a six love six love, so <laughs> that's worth at least a mention. Yeah, that's something. So, what else? Some more etceteras from Cincy as we're wrapping up. We got some Raiders ice cream, which Nick Kyrgios was thinking about in the final game of his final against Grigor. <laughs> I missed that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He said that he, uh, as the last few games were going on, he felt like, well, you know, I'm not going to win. I want some ice cream and I want to play basketball later. Was it definitely Grater's ice cream he yes. was talking about? Oh, yes. Okay. So I don't know if he got the ice cream. The thing about the Grater's ice cream, I saw, I think it was Perlescent on Twitter asking mm-hmm. about this today. It's the third time we've been in Cincinnati and it was the first time we tried it. I don't always do well with dairy. TMI. TMI. <laughs> so as much as I love ice cream, like it's, I don't know. I, I'm not one of those people also that, oh, it's a hot day, I need ice cream. Uh-huh. I don't make that connection for myself. Yeah, yeah. Because like, it's like a hot day, so you want cream. Exactly. You know, like... <laughs> like I want a beer or a margarita or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, but we tried it for the first time and you were like, is it soft serve? Like, no, it's ice cream. Like, I don't want hard ice cream. It's like, I don't fuck with hard ice cream. We don't do that in Rochester. <laughs> And so it turns out Grater's is the happy medium. Because it's kind of a softer ice cream. Yeah, because they keep it at the correct temperature, I feel. I don't know if that's just because they had to they were limited in how cold they could keep it on site. Maybe, I don't know, but it was it was good. Yeah, I don't want to tell you that and then you go to a Grater's store in real life and you're like, oh my god, this is uh, hard as a rock. <laughs> what were those two fools talking about? But it was good, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Another thing, we uh, we played tennis with listeners and Twitter tennis Twitter peeps Steph in the US and Chad who's CC Smooth 13 you may have heard Chad on our previous episode reading the listener questions Uh, that was fun we played doubles match against them and we lost but whatever we've only played tennis one time this year and it's the first time we've ever played doubles together yeah we were down what were we down four love love. five one and then eventually Got it back to 6-3. Yeah, so I'm happy with that. I'm convinced we'd have pulled it out in the third set if we got the chance. <laughs> third set? I would have been dead by a third set. It was hot. Well, we'd have been dead by having to chase all those balls Chad's bouncing yes. over our head. So Chad plays with a lot of topspin. Um, like, I don't even know how that's possible. The balls literally bounce over your head. So Steph in the U.S. submitted this question. How many RPMs do you think Chad gets on his forehand? Let's not conflate the topspin forehand with loopy shots, with moon balls, because there were definitely some of those as well. <laughs> uh, will Chad have the opportunity to respond? I don't know. He can, he can <laughs> say whatever he wants on Twitter. Right. But for all the complaints that I may get about my you know, short backhand slices, and it turns out my backhand is very Federer-like. Not that it's good, but uh, like, apparently that's just how I like to play on the backhand. It's like maybe 2000. 13 Federer line. Yeah. <laughs> I find it much easier to hit a one-handed backhand than I do a two-handed. Uh-huh. So, whatever. But for the complaints that I get about drop shots and short slices from Chad, I would like you to know that they pale in comparison 
to having to jump to hit moon walls. <laughs> I mean, the court is only so deep. You can only go, you're like standing against the fence. Now, we are running out of time on the recorder. Do you want to stop and go move to your phone? What else is left? Well, we want to talk a little about being impressed and uh, tennis journalism and content and stuff like that. How much time do we have on that thing? Two minutes. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> okay, hold on one second. Hey, we're back. Okay. Are you still with us? Everyone? <laughs> <laughs> the audio quality might not be quite the same. Please forgive us. We, we are in a moving vehicle. We absolutely do not know because we're now just recording on our phone. Yeah. Who knows? It could be better. <laughs> so, uh, in by way of wrapping up, we wanted to talk a little about the experience of being credentialed media, how it's different, just some impressions that we've had. Okay. For for myself, I don't. I can't, really can't remember how much we talked about in the last episode. I think it brought up a lot of interesting questions about what it means to have access and keep access. It is difficult to get sit downs with players. Uh, there are you know you kind of have to grease the wheels. You are depending on their generosity with their time because they're under no obligation to speak with you. The example that we will use here, because it's what got us thinking about it, is if we had gotten Ash and Casey together in the same interview, and how do we not ask Casey about Margaret Court right. in that setting, even though we're trying to keep it light? Of like, course. Do we then undercut our own integrity as interviewers by not asking the obvious question, given that we are gay? and that it's a topic that we've covered extensively on the podcast. It's really tough because I know that she rarely talks about it and she normally does so on her own terms. So we could have been shot down. It could have been awkward. Uh, (laughs) This is the thing. Of course, it's something we want to know and we want to keep kind of the integrity of what we do. But when you're in the situation where you are depending on the tour to furnish you with these players, first of all. And also, you just want to produce good content. You want it to be enjoyable to listen to. We're not... This is not Barbara Walters, like... 2020. Right. (laughs) We're not producing hard-hitting journalism, and because I also don't think you would get the best stuff if you approach an interview that way, at least in this context, you know? We're not the New York Times. No. And we don't want to be, like, that... But it's not just not wanting to be. What is our medium? Right. When we are at, when we are at a tennis tournament, when we're on site, we're credentialed as the Body Serve Tennis Podcast, which in itself is an unusual kind of ambiguous medium for people to figure out uh-huh. within press circles what it is that we're doing. Oh yeah. Right. But we're also on site getting pictures for Instagram. We're on site watching matches, going to press conferences, asking questions in press conferences, doing match write-ups, doing more informal write-ups. It's not, we're not your traditional media. Right. So we ourselves are trying hard to figure out where we fit in within that whole situation and setup as well. Because, Because we're not with a major organization, we're also fine-tuning what our brand is at all times, right? Like, what is the body so? How are we setting ourselves apart from other people doing similar things? 
what is the coverage that we're trying to get? What will that coverage look like? And we do this so infrequently. This was the first time you've done it. Yes. It's only the third time I've done it. I'm still getting my feet wet. So it's all a tremendous learning curve. Right. And that said, I think we're both at least 85% happy with what we were able to accomplish. <laughs> I'm I'm happy that we, we did produce a lot. I know, like you said, this is a new medium. A lot of people don't get it, especially amongst like the older media. I'm sure there are people there who think what we do is frivolous. Yes. No one said that. I mean, people were so kind yes. and very like, yes. we didn't get that impression. But, you know, I'm sure that feeling exists out there for people who are also doing this for money, like doing this for their living to yeah. feed their kids, right? Um, but, you know, we work hard. We did recording as well. Like, we're trying to put out something, something really good. And our only obligation is to ourselves and to you, the listeners, frankly, yeah. at this point. It is so freeing because we are still completely independent. Yeah. But we well, literally. mostly independent. We still, like you said, have to toe certain lines to yes. keep the access. Yeah. And I have we. I talked about this with Caitlin Thompson, who's the founder of Racket Magazine, in our interview a few months back. It's something that I'm constantly interested in: is what sort of sacrifices do you have to make to to keep access to your sources? And in this case, your sources are guarded. By, by a tour, by an organization that obviously is putting out a product and wants to portray the players in the best light. Right? They're trying to get eyeballs on women's tennis. So I'm cognizant of that. We love the product of women's tennis, so we're not out here to denigrate it in any way. But you also want to have some, like I said, integrity. You still have to be able to call it the bullshit where you see it. Exactly. And I think if we stop doing that, it we wouldn't really be the body serve anymore. So that's really all I wanted to say about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank you for being in press. Oh. You were hesitant, should we say? I was. For yep. much of the summer, I yep. kind of pushed you into it. And then the closer we got, you were like, uh... And then when you finally got the email saying, you were going to be credentialed, you're like, yes! (laughs) I was very excited. And I was still apprehensive, even on the way. Like, even on the road. Even after day three, because you did not enjoy the all-access hour at all. I really didn't. Full disclosure, that was just not my thing. It was, you were just thrown in with my first experience being a reporter in press. And, I mean, people have their questions ready. And you just got to, like, yell them. Um, So I asked a few questions, but I... It was just not my milieu, let's, let's say. And I tried to impress upon you that it's not just people coming prepared with questions. It's being able to ask questions on the spot yeah. and trust that your questions are good enough. Uh-huh. You were, I think, in your head concerned with sounding stupid and you weren't willing to put yourself out like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the truth is, sometimes you need to be the person to ask the obvious question to open up conversation. Yes. And I didn't grasp that. Because I, I I mean, I'm sitting there, I want to ask a great, a fascinating question. You want That's Muguruza always... to say, oh my God, where are you from? Right. Are you, who are you with? That is the best question I've gotten right. all year. But the truth is, you are not always going to get a good answer, if even if you have a great question. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's the easiest questions that get a good quote. Yeah. And that's the difference 
you you often see if you read press transcripts you'll look at a question and you're like oh my god that is the stupidest question <laughs> it's the laziest question but what the intent of that question was was to open up the player to get an expansive response that if you are a print journalist or somebody who is just looking to pull some quotes and put it somewhere that's what you want yeah. so you're not concerned about how you look and how you sound whereas we we're taking a lot of times taking the audio and putting it on our podcast the threshold for having a higher quality and standard of being discerning and professional in the way you ask these questions is higher yeah because that's the nature of what we do we need the good audio right <laughs> right and you will know that it is us who asked the question because it's our voice. You're not hearing like some bro ask, oh, so you know, just talk about that. Like you don't know who asked that question, right? right? There's just so much to think and consider about tennis that you learn more and more as you attend more tournaments. And in our case, do press more often. Yeah. I was grateful for the experience because it is teaching me to be more understanding of both players and reporters um, but there's just so much that we have opined about here that maybe we didn't understand the full picture correct right? and so I mean tennis Twitter does that constantly but so do we yeah and I I feel like we try our best to be informed but there's just so much context missing and I think that's the thing that I'll take with me most from talking behind the scenes with people who are on tour more than we are yeah there's pretty much with every story, there's always going to be a whole bunch of stuff that we just don't know. Right. And so we're just always going to have to be extra careful that it's... And it's something we've said all the time, these issues are not black and white. They're not two-sided. And that's how we try and come at these stories. But even with that perspective, there's still going to be a whole lot more that we're not privy to and we don't know. On that note... I, if you're interested in journalism, I hope you enjoyed, and I'd love, love to hear your thoughts on this, because it is sort of a pet project of mine. Um, next time, I promise we'll do more Fuck, Mary Kills, just to lighten the mood <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> thank you for listening, and thank you so much for following along with our coverage from Cincinnati. We, I mean, we obviously had a great time. We produced a lot, so, you know, just look at what you can. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick my head in a trophy right now like Grigor. <laughs> I wonder what he's looking for. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Till next time.